Awesome. So uh, I'm excited to, uh, to be here this morning, uh, share a little bit of God's word with you this morning. So uh, my wife and I last night celebrated our fifth year wedding anniversary. Amen. It's a big deal. But, uh, but even bigger than that this week, even bigger than that, uh, on Thursday, I will be 14 years as a disciple. And uh, this, uh, this spiritual birthday is especially uh, big for me. Uh, I'm 28 years old, so 14 years, uh, just about half my life uh, as a disciple. So um, I'm popping a little bit. Is there anything I need to do? Nope, I'm good. Um, so anyways, uh, I'd like to uh, open up with a, uh, a picture here. If we can put the picture up. Do you believe in miracles? It's a good question, right? Do you believe in miracles? Perhaps one of the most famous sports broadcasting calls in history. In the 1980 United States uh, hockey team shocked the world by pulling off one of the greatest upsets in defeating the Soviets. But why was it such a miracle? The Soviet hockey team held the gold medal for the last 20 years. They were the most dominant hockey team in the world. Shortly before the Olympics, they had destroyed an all-American uh, or an all-star team of Americans from the NHL hockey teams. The Olympic American team at that time was all amateurs, mostly college kids. No one except for them believed they could win. Herb Brooks was charged with assembling and coaching this group of amateurs. Before the dream of gold could become reality, he had to unify a team of guys who came from different backgrounds, different colleges, and different parts of the country. When they first sat down together, he asked, who do you play for? Each player responded with the name of his college. Brooks knew that had to change. So after a half-hearted performance in an exhibition game, he had them do sprints on skates over and over again until they were beyond exhaustion. During the brutal workout, he yelled, who do you play for? And one player responded, I play for the United States of America. It was a defining moment. And with that, he dismissed the team. The group of individuals became one. They no longer saw themselves as playing for different schools, but as playing for the USA. They became a team. Each player committed themselves to cause. The energy and contribution of each individual became maximized. It was beautiful. <laughs> it was beautiful and the impact was great. A miracle was accomplished. You guys still with me this morning? A miracle was accomplished, right? The title of our lesson this morning is Radical Unity. 
And I think, brothers and sisters, if we want to, uh, to see miracles happen, we've got to be unified. For miracles to happen in our workplace, in our church, in our homes, we've got to be unified with one another. I want to start by uh, saturating our minds this morning with, I can't walk away, with God's thoughts on unity. I might hold the mic. How's that? You know, uh, here, here are some scriptures that came to mind when I think of uh, God's word. Again, God's thoughts on unity. In Psalm 133, verse 1, it says, How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Colossians 3, 14, it says, Over all these virtues put love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. You know, we've been talking about radical love recently, right? You got to have radical love in order to have radical unity. Romans 12, 16, live in harmony with one another. In Ephesians 4, verse 3, it says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And finally, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, it says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. So brothers and sisters, whether or not uh, you uh, were confused uh, about God's thoughts on unity, hopefully those verses bring some clarity uh, of God's call for us as his church to be unified. But before we can go into depth about what unity is, first we got to consider what unity is not. Uh, because sometimes I think we can get a little confused on what is or isn't unity. I love this quote by Martin Luther King. It says, unity has never meant uniformity. Unity has never meant uniformity. So that, what does that mean for you and me? Just because we believe the same thing doesn't necessarily mean we're unified. Okay, just because we believe the same thing doesn't mean we're unified. You know, in James it says, even the demons believe there's a God and shudder. You know, unity is not just being together. It's being together for the same purpose. And I think just because we meet together on Sunday mornings doesn't necessarily mean we're unified. You know, anyone who's ever seen a boxing match and two boxers in a ring can tell you that simply being together doesn't mean you're unified, right? You know, there's a big difference between putting up with each other and being unified, okay? There's a big difference between simply getting along with each other and actually being unified. Unity isn't the same as tolerance, and unity isn't the same as acceptance. Unity goes a step further. Now, if you want to get an idea of what unity is not, you can simply turn on the news, right? You know, the country we live in is plagued by disunity. We're certainly in the uh, midst 
of political disunity with the elections coming up. You pick a, uh, a topic, any topic, and you're sure to find an argument on every part of the spectrum. You know, our, our country is also in the midst of immense racial unity. And I, I don't want to be a pessimist, but it's safe to say that there's a civil war going on in our country uh, between blacks and whites and cops and you name it, there's, there's just so much racial disunity. And, uh, you know, I, I know Gordon spoke about a month ago on what this disunity is looking like in our society and how it can so easily seep into the church. And this isn't uh, a part two to Gordon's sermon. Uh, I wouldn't dare do that. But, um, but again, this just gives us an idea, looking at the world around us, what unity is not. Let's turn to Romans chapter 12. Again, you don't have to look very far to see what unity is not. But in looking at God's word here in Romans chapter 12, this uh, this one verse I think can give us a lot of insight into what unity is. It simply says in verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And so this morning we're going to talk about how this verse alone can create radical unity in our lives. How obeying this verse can spark unity in your family, in your marriage, in your workplace, uh, maybe even in your new mentoring groups. Uh, It can create unity, hopefully, in our church as a whole. And so the first uh, key, the first point this morning, radical unity, is to rejoice with those who rejoice. You know, it may seem like a simple point, but uh, think about how much rejoicing unifies us and brings people together. You know, you think about uh, weddings, right? Birthday parties, holidays, family reunions. Rejoicing brings people together. Uh, People love to celebrate together. And there's something about uh, laughing with someone that creates this bond that connects us, right? Uh, Sharing a laugh with someone uh, creates this, again, seal of unity with one another. You know, even think about sports teams that celebrate after winning a game, right? Uh, Everyone loves to win. Uh, And there's so much rejoicing after winning a game. Nobody rejoices when their opponent wins, right? Uh, Again, when you're working on something together, unified to, to reach a common goal, there's great rejoicing. However, it doesn't become radical unity until you can rejoice in the success of others. Okay, it doesn't become radical unity until you can rejoice in the success of others. How you handle someone else's victories determines whether or not you'll just be tolerant or you'll actually be united. And it's easy to uh, rejoice when others are rejoicing with you, uh, but it's a lot harder when you're the one rejoicing with others. You guys picking up what I'm putting down? 
You know, pride is perhaps our biggest hindrance in unity. Um, again, simply because it's hard to rejoice with those who, who rejoice. In uh, Philippians chapter 2, I, uh, I call you to really write this verse on your heart. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. You know, this is the solution, right? This is the solution to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And if each of us are united with Jesus, then certainly we'll be united with one another. I love this uh, quote by A.W. Tozer. It says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically attuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So here's the question of the day. Do you rejoice about the things Jesus rejoices about? Okay, do you rejoice about the things Jesus rejoices about? There are two verses that, uh, that came to mind when I think about things Jesus rejoices about. The first one is here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 12. It says, Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. Second one in Luke 15 says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. You know, Jesus rejoices in heavenly rewards. Not in earthly rewards, but in heavenly rewards. Jesus rejoices in heaven-bound souls. You know, the world says to, uh, to rejoice in success here on earth, right? The world rejoices in money, in cars, in technology, in comfort. The world focuses on success and popularity and everything temporary. You know, as a church, what are we focused on? In your family, what are you focused on? If we have the mindset of Jesus, I think we've got to have a desire for seeking and saving the lost. You know, if we're going to rejoice about the things Jesus rejoices about, we've got to have a desire to save the lost. You know, how about your marriage? Is your marriage focused on making disciples, 
uh, or simply trying to have a great marriage. Yeah, I think there's uh, some couples, sometimes we can focus so much on fixing the issues, right? Uh, Working so much on, on trying to get along with each other that you actually make things worse, right? And instead of, uh, you know, working so hard to get along with one another, I think if we simply focus on being like Jesus, uh, you know, being united with Christ, again, being about our purpose, a lot of these uh, issues are going to go away. Yeah, that's what creates unity, being focused on Jesus, rejoicing about, amen, Rejoicing about the things Jesus would rejoice about. You know, I think Jesus would rejoice in great marriages. That's not, uh, that's not what I'm saying. But I think when our primary focus becomes on trying to make this marriage better, um, we're so distracted on what God wants. You know, how about your families? Are you teaching your kids to rejoice about the things Jesus rejoices about? You know, do you talk with your kids more about their grades or more about God's word? Think about that. Do you talk with your kids more about their grades or about God's word? Are you more excited uh, and rejoice more over their spirituality or their achievements in sports? Or their achievements in band? You know, I remember when I was in high school... Uh, I was on the football team, and we had a, uh, a fundraiser uh, called a wait-a-thon. Anybody know? I think it was called a wait-a-thon. You guys know what a wait-a-thon is? Like, you get people to sponsor you per pound you can lift, right? You guys with me? Yeah. Uh, so, so I, you know, I sent out some, some letters to, uh, to do this fundraiser for, uh, for the football team. But at the, uh, at the same time at church, uh, we were doing what was called rent-a-team, Okay, so we're renting out our, uh, our services to, uh, to, to people to raise money for special missions contribution. So doing little chores and stuff around the house. And I had a family friend that came to me and uh, asked, okay, you want money for the, the wait-a-thon? You want money for the rent-a-teen? I can only do one. Which one do you want me to do? And the decision was easy. And I say the decision was easy because I think my parents taught me that, that the things Jesus rejoices about are way more important, again, than the things the world rejoices about. And so I told them, of course, I would rather give money to special missions contribution than to my football team. Yeah, how about this one? When was the last time your kids saw you share your faith? You know, I remember when I was younger, um, going out to uh, apartment complexes and knocking on doors and inviting people to, to church or inviting people to Bible talk. I remember seeing my parents uh, stop people at Walmart and uh, stand there and share their faith with them. You know, for Janelle and I, jumping back in and, and uh, helping lead the teen ministry, our dream is to see our teens invite their friends to church, help them study the Bible, help them become disciples. But the reality is that that's not going to happen if their parents 
aren't giving them an example to follow. And, uh, you know, Janelle and I, again, we've been married five years. We don't have any kids yet. Um, so I don't have a, a wealth of uh, parenting experience to be able to share with you. But I can share with you as someone who's grown up in the church. And if there's one thing that's inspired me to become a disciple, to, to stay faithful in my walk with God, it's the example that my parents have set for me. Again, simply being a disciple will create unity in your household. You know, how about the, uh, the singles in campus? You guys still awake? You know, I... Uh, <laughs> There's definitely can be uh, some disunity in singles and campus households as well. Uh, I remember when I was in campus, it seemed like the biggest uh, argument was always dishes being left in the sink, right? Dirty dishes being left in the sink. And, um, but, but seriously, okay, where are you storing your treasures? You know, I was in the singles ministry for, uh, for just a year before Janelle and I got married, and uh, my roommate and I uh, had a little apartment, and uh, we went out and we knocked doors in our apartment complex, had a Bible talk in our apartment. Uh, it was awesome, right? And it's a lot harder to argue about the dishes when your focus is on sharing your faith, seeking and saving the lost, helping your neighbors become disciples. Amen? <clears throat> You know, when we're rejoicing about the things Jesus rejoices about, we can't help but be united. We can't help but be unified. The, uh, the second point this morning is simply mourn with those who mourn. You know, we're called by, uh, by Paul and Thessalonians to uh, rejoice always, right? But according to Ecclesiastes, it says there is a time to mourn. And uh, in fact, there's an entire book in the Old Testament devoted to mourning. It's called Lamentations. If you didn't know what a lament was, right? That's a, a whole book devoted to mourning. If you want to figure out what mourning's about, go dive into it. And uh, I think just as much as rejoicing brings unity, there's also great unity that springs up from mourning with one another. You know, we've already mentioned today and uh, seen a video about 9-11. And it's hard to believe that 15 years have gone by. And most of you probably remember where you were at when you got the news that morning. And if there was ever a time for mourning in our great nation, this would be it. Nearly 3,000 men and women lost their lives that day. I want to read you uh, an article about the uh, American spirit after the attacks. It says, shortly after the Twin Towers fell on September 11th, 2001, the nation began to mourn. And around the country, Americans began to commemorate the victims 
and demonstrate their patriotism. Some flew the American flag from their front porches and car antennas. Others pinned it to their lapels and wore it on t-shirts. Sports teams postponed games. Celebrities organized benefit concerts and performances. People attended impromptu candlelight vigils and participated in moments of silence. They gathered in common places like Chicago's Daily Plaza, Honolulu's Waikiki Beach, and especially New York City's Union Square Park, posting tributes to the dead and to share their grief with others. I don't know why I've been coming here, except that I'm confused, one young man said. Also, a sense of unity. We all feel differently about what to do in response, but everybody seems to agree that we've got to be together no matter what happens. So you get a little bit of hope in togetherness. You know, our nation knows radical unity when it comes to mourning with those who mourn. But I've got to ask you, are you mourning about the things Jesus mourns about? You know, I love how the, uh, the, the man in the video said, uh, thinking about his coworkers that lost their lives and were separated from God. Sometimes I'm afraid we, uh, we get so upset about the wrong things, right? We allow momentary uh, discomforts in life to, uh, to take away our joy. And uh, I'm, I'm sure you've heard the saying before, don't cry over spilled milk, right? You guys have heard that? Don't cry over spilled milk. And uh, I never realized how applicable that statement really is, right? Uh, Think about it. If you are crying over spilled milk, uh, at least you've got milk to spill, right? And uh, I couldn't help but imagine a a gallon. I was going to bring a gallon of milk up here and just pour out a little. But again, think about having a gallon full of milk and just losing a little bit of it and allowing that to... to take away your joy. You know, are you mourning over the wrong things in life? Uh, I think it happens in subtle ways. You know, again, little inconveniences that pop up in our lives that we, we tend to dwell on, right? You get a flat tire and you just mourn over a flat tire. Uh, your AC goes out, right? You just... Morning. Uh, you lose your sunglasses, or uh, your your computer crashes, right? And you know, we we allow these inconveniences in life to strip away our joy, and we end up mourning about things that, again, I don't think Jesus is mourning about. Okay, but what does Jesus mourn about? You know, I love uh, the shortest verse in the Bible, right? Jesus wept. Okay, what did Jesus weep about? You know, this is after uh, the death of his dear friend Lazarus. You know, with all the issues that go on in our society, 
it's easy to let things go in one ear and out the other, right? And uh, I know I'm guilty of it. You hear, uh, you hear of people dying on the news, whether it's mass killings or whatever it may be, and uh, you're able to just go about your day uh, because it doesn't affect you, right? Um, you, you watch deaths advertised on the news each night, but you can just flip off the TV, close your eyes, sleep peacefully, and, you know, should that not concern us? Should that not concern us that we don't mourn with those who mourn? And again, I think some of it's just the society we live in that uh, makes us numb to the fact that people are dying all around us. You know, think of children who are going to go without food today. And think of the thousands of men and women that will die of diseases that could have easily been cured if they lived in the right country. What are the things you're mourning about in your life? Did Starbucks get your coffee wrong and you just, right? You just feel like, man, that, that ruined my day. Seriously, are we mourning about the things Jesus mourns about? You know, another verse that came to mind is here in Genesis chapter 6 in verse 5. You know, again, this one, maybe not as much Jesus, but definitely God. It says the Lord, in verse 5, it says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. If you're going to mourn like Jesus mourns, how about you start with the sin in your life, right? Um, again, you know, another version says that in seeing the sin on earth, God's heart was filled with pain. And I just think about that. God's got to have a big heart. I'm not sure what the ratio is uh, compared to ours, but for his heart to be filled with pain. Sin deeply upsets God. Does it deeply upset you? You know, sometimes we can just brush off sin um, because it doesn't seem like that big of a deal, right? And we can tend to uh, shy away, especially from pointing out the sin in others because it just makes us uncomfortable. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't seem like our place or doesn't seem important to be able to share However, not mourning over the sins of our lives and the sins of others, it leads to disunity in our relationships. Not mourning over your sin or the sins of those around you, it disunifies us. And certainly as the body of Christ, we can't just let sin go unchecked. Um, And I think for some of us, sin may be going unchecked in our lives. And, you know, you may be open about it, uh, and and you may pretend like you're trying to change, but are you really mourning over the sin in your life? You know, as we come to a close, 
I want to read this verse in Ephesians chapter 6. Our theme uh, in the campus ministry this semester is spiritual warfare. And it comes from this verse in Ephesians 6 verse 12. It says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You know, in my mind, this is why we need unity. Because whether you realize it or not, there is a spiritual war raging all around you. And if you're confused as to why you need teammates and relationships, uh, this is it right here. Satan is trying to take you down. There's an old African proverb that says, if you want to go quickly, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. If you want to go quickly, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And again, Satan's desire is to get us alone, right? If he can make us uh, feel alone, then he can make us fall. And Satan's scheming for a plan to, to make you fall into sin. He's studying your move to see where he can pull you away from the rest of the body and pull you away from God. There's another quote. You probably saw the wolf there. It says, unity is a beast in itself. If a wolf sees two little boys playing in the woods on one side and a big strong man on the other side, he will go to the one who stands alone. Unity is a beast. And when you're not united with the body, you're strong. When you stand alone is when Satan attacks. And brothers and sisters, as we walk away today, consider this. Do you rejoice about the things Jesus rejoices about? And do you mourn about the things that he mourns? I think by doing this, we'll be able to, uh, to create a culture of radical unity within the church. Amen? Let's close in prayer.